Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is David Frangioni, CEO and publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine, Modern Drummer Media, and Modern Drummer Publications. So excited about our new podcast, The Modern Drummer Podcast. This weekly podcast will bring Modern Drummer to life. Sit back and enjoy fresh, fun, and insightful conversations with today's top drummers, producers, musicians, beat makers, and craftsmen. Whether you're a professional, a hobbyist, drummer, musician, programmer, producer, or just love music, this show is for you. Every other week, the Modern Drummer Podcast will feature world-renowned producer, songwriter, and drummer, Narda Michael Walden. Narda Michael Walden's Upbeat is featured exclusively on the Modern Drummer Podcast. Welcome in. This is Mike Dawson, Managing Editor for Modern Drummer. In this episode, we are touching base with August 2020 cover artist Thomas Lang to dig a little bit deeper into his new album, Prog Pop, and also his new business venture, Nine Beats USA. For Up for the Gear Review, we are touching base with Burke Doherty, who is the exclusive U.S. distributor for a new symbol company out of Japan called Koide. And we're going to check out two of their series, the 703 and the 10J series. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Thomas Lang, to the Modern Drummer Podcast interview show. So uh, thank you for taking the time. My first question, which usually is one of those questions that's just casual, but this is a little bit more serious. How are you doing <laughs> amidst oh. this crazy time? Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, I'm doing uh, pretty good considering the very challenging circumstances. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's there's a lot to deal with right now on so many levels, I'm sure, for everybody. And um, but, uh, you know, I think I'm one of the lucky ones. And, uh, you know, my life in regards to work hasn't changed drastically because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, of course, the touring aspect and the, the, the playing live um, aspect is gone. Right. Um, which was kind of a welcome change for me because I've been touring so much and traveling so much and spending a lot of time away mm-hmm. from my work here, from my session work, from my family. So that's kind of been a welcome change. Um, and in all other respects, you know, I work from home when I'm here. So, right. and I work from my studio, I do a lot of remote and online sessions and I was able to continue doing that and focus on my other businesses. So um, I guess one of the lucky ones, you know, and yeah. I can do a bit. So is this the longest stretch you've been home? Absolutely. By far, you know, literally since I left high school, this is the longest time I've been in one place at a time. It's yeah. very <laughs> so were you antsy for the first three months? I mean, did you settle in? 
No, not at all. Actually, it was the opposite. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with the kids and the family. And uh, But then uh, after a few months, obviously, the, the cabin fever set in a little bit. Yeah, and, of course. And uh, now we're dealing with another uh, aspect of this, uh, another challenge, uh, being the fact that we're too close too long, too much together, <laughs> you know, getting on each other's nerves. But hey, other than you that, have no, a I mean, studio. I mean, is that is that a part of your property? Or do you have to go somewhere to get to where you're at. Right I, now? I, I, I have two, so I have one in my house, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I've been using that for many, many years for my remote sessions and practicing, etc. But I have another one, this one here, um, which is very close to my house, about five minutes from my house, and this is the Nine Beats USA headquarter and. Uh, Okay. studio a teaching facility and offices nice yeah so you got ahead of the curve i think i think we saw the writing on the wall 15 years ago that drummers needed to have their own studios but Absolutely. now it's even more like there is is there another side of it are we ever going to come out when you can not have a studio i think every drummer at this point for teaching recording yeah. practicing absolutely how do you not have um, one yes how can you not have one uh, these days, absolutely, and not just every drummer, every musician needs a place to practice. Of course, um, for us drummers, that requires usually a dedicated, separate room from where you're living uh, if you want to practice on acoustic drums. So, um, you know, guitar players, keyboard players, um, kind of other, they have it a lot easier in that respect. Um, but I think every musician needs, uh, of course, a place to practice. And I personally enjoy having a dedicated space um, because it puts you in a certain mindset when you go mm-hmm. there to work, when you go to practice or, right. you know, do session work, whatever it is. And uh, I think every musician needs um, a place where they can interact with other musicians uh, online and digitally. I think right. in the 21st century, that is a way to stay connected, to stay, to keep working and to make new connections and to make money uh, in many ways, like you just said, you know, online sessions, remote sessions, uh, live streaming lessons, uh, teaching Skype lessons, whatever it is. Um, so it's definitely become a an important part of what we do, especially in days like these, you know. So before we all got locked down, how much of your studio work was just strictly remote anyway? Was it mostly probably probably eighty percent, mm-hmm. a huge amount. It's you know I've I've done tons of sessions you know over my career of course, uh, and usually that requires flying me somewhere you know paying for my uh, flight and mm-hmm. hotels and, uh, and food and what have you plus my fees. So it was very time consuming, very labor intensive, and very expensive. And I started building my studio more than 10 years ago, I think 12 or 13 years ago, and, um, and worked from home. And that saved a lot of my clients a lot of money mm-hmm. and uh, made a lot of low-budget productions possible uh, for me to participate in because there was no you know, travel cost involved right. and people just had to pay my fee. And I personally really enjoy working in this kind of fashion because it allows me to spend more time with the music to really get into the music and learn the songs. And it allows me to have a lot more choices in regards to equipment and sound. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I can also film what I'm doing, and uh, it's a very comfortable environment, and I'm a lot more productive, and uh, and it's it's cheaper for the client. So I think um, yes, we all saw the signs probably ten years ago already. Yeah, and I think a lot of people just haven't been able to get their own home studio up and running in time, and now everybody's scrambling a little bit to make it happen. Yeah, you can't but, even find a webcam anymore. They're all sold out. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's a good thing, you know. So to streamline your process, do you keep one kit mic'd up, ready to go, come in, turn it on, and roll? Or do you still kind of build it out custom? One kit? <laughs> you know, like five kits. A starting kit, a starting point. Do you have like a yeah, base I have, setup? I have multiple kits um, always set up, ready to oh, go. Okay. And... Um, yeah, it's uh, in at the moment. I have three kits set up here, all mic'd up, mm. all wired in, all ready to go. Um, sometimes I have you know two uh, or three drum sets plus a percussion rig set up. Um, I have different kits for kind of different purposes. Mm. Uh, I have a real sort of heavy rock kit, large sizes, um, loud drums. I have kind of my my mothership back there. I don't know if you can see that yep. with all my toys and, and uh, you know, rototoms and gong drums and foot toys and everything. And then I have another kind of jazzy kit set up here um, where I, I can, I can hold the camera that way. If you can see it, that's kind oh, yeah. of a, a yeah. jazz kind of loop kit behind me is, is my regular kit. And then back there at the corner, I have a bunch of concert toms set up right now. I was doing some overdubs. And uh, so, yeah, I always have uh, multiple kits set up. And, um, yeah, it's it's very efficient that way. I can walk right in and listen to music, choose sounds that I like, maybe s- switch out some cymbals, and I'm ready to go. Now, how much post-production do you do, or do you leave that to the artist or client? I, I like to do full takes of everything I do. Mm-hmm. without punching in or out. So I actually learned a song. I get into the music. I played a bunch of times until I feel comfortable with it. And then I do usually three or four takes, mm-hmm. choose the best one and send it to the client. I mean, there's literally zero post-production going into it. I'm not doing any editing or quantizing or sound replacing or anything like that. I'm mm-hmm. just playing the song as best as I can with as much, you know, of authentic energy and, uh, and then send it off. I try to, I, I prefer playing more in my studio rather than editing more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a rabbit hole once you get into that side. Yeah. It's, and you know, I've, I've done both, uh, and realized that the, every client is, is interested in a great performance, not a great edit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for me personally, as a musician, that's a lot more fun. It's, it's more of a challenge, uh, I think more about music and not so much about editing or technology when I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. And it makes my day a lot more enjoyable and I get to play more, Mm -hmm. you know, and I feel it's a lot more authentic that way. Right. Yeah. At that point, it's out of your hands. They do whatever they want to do with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So this is something I wanted to ask you for a long time. We never actually sat down and had a conversation. I want to know what point, because you're, you're, so well known for for pushing the boundaries of what this instrument can do technically with, with the multi-pedal setup and all the coordination and technique but mm-hmm. what point in the in your path as a drummer did you decide i'm going to go full steam ahead to push this thing 
rather than I'm just going to play Les Zeppelin songs for the rest of my life? Um, I think that happened very early on. And, you know, I, I, I didn't make sort of that, that very sort of premeditated conscious decision of pushing the boundaries. I just wanted freedom hmm. uh, and the ability to play whatever I was able to mentally conceive also physically on the drums. And hmm. it wasn't for any other reason other than being able to focus on what to play without any technical limitations or, or, you know, restrictions on the kit in any kind of way. I wanted to be able to think something and then translate it onto the drums very freely and comfortably and intuitively. And I noticed, I had some great teachers in my early days of playing and they made it clear to me that technique is a wonderful tool that allows you to express yourself very, very freely. If you have technical limitations and have to think about stickings or how to move on the kit mm-hmm. to reach that thing over there at the right time, uh, you are always preoccupied with with technique. You know, you're always distracted, and um, and I I didn't want that. You know, and I always admired drummers who were virtuoso players with a lot of freedom. Um, sort of cross genre, um, you know, crossing genres and and being able to express themselves authentically and idiomatically correct uh, in different styles um, with the same amount of freedom. And that always impressed me. And I wanted to be sort of that kind of a musician. Now, was there some music that you wanted to play but couldn't, couldn't play? Or were you just thinking ahead? Well, I was, I couldn't play anything authentically at the time. I mean, I was, you know, I was really young. I was Mm. probably, I started playing when I was four and by the time I was about 10 or so, I think I realized that technique was really, really important. Okay. And and focused a lot on technique. Um, And, uh, and learning styles was, was a huge part of my daily repertoire at that time, you know, playing not just rock music, but jazz, for example, uh, classical music, um, all kinds of genres. And I was always into every style of music. You know, my, my taste is very eclectic and, uh, and I enjoy all kinds of music, whether it's the Western music and all its genres, you know, rock and rock and roll and funk and jazz and whatever, reggae, and also sort of more ethnic music, world music, African, um, you know, Asian music, uh, Eastern European, whatever it is, you know, I like it all. And, and I like to work ideas and influences from all these kinds of styles of music into my playing. And I'm open to anything and uh, enjoy it all. And I, you know, obviously I'm from Vienna, Austria. So there's a really massive classical music history and scene there. Right. And that had a big influence. And, and that's all about perfect reproduction, not making mistakes, perfect technique. Mm-hmm. And it's a very sort of authoritarian approach, you know, in terms of teaching and learning. And uh, I think I took that sort of, you know, influence and attitude and, and studied a lot of other styles with the same kind of intensity and, mm-hmm. and determination. And, um, and then it all ended up sort of a mishmash of my own thing, you know, but right. technique again, wasn't really, it was of course a focus when I was practicing, but it wasn't a goal. The goal was the freedom. Mm-hmm. Now, have you found this many years into it? How, how's the maintenance game 
are you is it pretty much there or do you have to keep up more like an athlete i have to keep up with it of course you know you get rusty really quickly mm -hmm. um but i also get back into it fairly quickly you know if you know there's so many things that you have to maintain at a high level of playing yeah. every musician has to do that i mean there's certain licks and chops and patterns or whatever that if you don't sort of caress them and massage them on an almost daily basis, you know, you get rusty and they eventually go away. So mm -hmm. I try to revisit the basics regularly, uh, both, you know, hand and foot technique, singles, doubles, mixed sticking exercises, rudimental stuff, applied rudiments, etc. So I, I, I still practice the same things to maintain a high level of playing that I practiced probably 30 years ago. Right. You know, you can never go wrong practicing singles and doubles to maintain a comfortable level of playing. Mm -hmm. So in your cover story, you talk about your current focus being mostly on creativity. Yes. Um, but you didn't quite go into specifics. So I wanted to ask a follow-up. How do you specifically incorporate creativity into your practicing? Um, well, you know, creativity is the most important aspect, in my opinion, in regards to uh, making music, being a musician, an artist, expressing yourself. And, you know, there's, there's different steps and levels uh, and approaches to being creative. You have to first observe, take in what's, what already exists, mm -hmm. and, and, and then judge, like, do you like this? What do you enjoy about uh, art or creativity that you get from other people that you're exposed to? Then you, you deliberately try to not copy. You exclude everything you hear that you like and try to find a new way of interpreting old ideas. Then you, you start taking these existing ideas, like rudiments, for example, yeah. and start playing around with them. Every day you sit down to practice, you know, I never practiced rudiments just on a pad. A lot of people think rudiments are pad exercises. Of course they're not. You know, mm -hmm. there's nothing you can play on the drum set that doesn't, that cannot be broken down into rudiments. Right. Everything that anybody ever played is rudiments. That's why we have rudiments. It's, you know, it's the, the alphabet of drumming. Mm -hmm. So um, you take something that exists like rudiments or any other sort of, cliche uh, on the drums and and flip it around look at it um, from a different perspective a paradiddle can be orchestrated in interesting ways it can be played between hands and feet or just with your feet mm -hmm. uh, you can layer rudiments on top of each other and then orchestrate them in an interesting way and then it's just a matter of taste you know you experiment and you grope in the dark a lot and uh, and then eventually you'll grab hold of something that kind of reflects your taste, um, you know, your judgment, um, and, and maybe fits into that whole concept of creating something new and, and playing something that hasn't been played before. And I try to do that every day when I sit down and play. I try to deliberately sort of censor myself. When I first sit down to play every single day, what I do is I play everything left-handed hmm. just to snap out of my, my habits and I play a few songs leading with the left hand and the left foot uh, just to switch everything around a little bit, get out of my comfort zone. And then in that process, I also try to play things that I haven't played before. 
basically improvising over whatever songs I'm playing to, trying different things, uh, looking at everything that I do from a slightly different perspective and different angle in regards to sounds, uh, stickings, you know, orchestration. Mm. And I try to make myself feel extremely uncomfortable. Mm. And I find for myself personally that that is a perfect place to start working on creative ideas and sort of conceptual stuff. Uh, when you're not in your comfort zone and completely detached from all the habits that you're kind of caught up in usually. I know a lot of musicians who sit down and first thing they play when they pick up their guitar or, or sit behind the drums is something they've already played before, something they've yeah. um, learned a long time ago and feel super comfortable with. And I'm kind of the opposite of that. I like to get super uncomfortable and and start at that point. And I within a few minutes, I usually discover something that's worth exploring mm. uh, creatively or technically. And uh, and those kind of things go hand in hand because if it's a kind of a technical challenge, uh, uh, again, I'm I'm back at what I mentioned earlier. If if it's a technical challenge, it restricts my freedom to express myself, and and that is a welcome. Uh, thing for me when I'm practicing, you know, I like mm. practicing things that I haven't practiced before and learn something new every day. So do you, do you document the new things as they come along? Do you stop, write them down or make a note or you just eat day day. something new? Every day I film myself and I take notes of my ideas uh, and then compile them into massive folders of, you know, one to three minute mm. video clips of ideas. And then, at the end of the day, I usually go through them and name them and put them in different bins. Um, and when I run out of creative juice, then I usually go back to those bins and go, oh, okay, what did I do? Like, you know, last week or three weeks ago, let's see. Ah, cool. And I revisit those old ideas. Do you feel like you have to relearn it again at that point? I relearn it again. I just analyze what I did on video and uh, and uh, what my verbal description is before I I record myself and why, uh, mm. you know, I was doing that or working on it and how it would fit into my playing or into a particular song or something. And then, um, you know, I very sort of methodically, I catalog it all. I keep it in bins and revisit and then, yeah, relearn um, or just tweak it and and develop it. Cool. Great. I got to start doing that. I record it and then never review it. <laughs> it just yeah. exists. And I mean, I literally in my phone, um, if I go into my videos now, um, everything's, I don't know if you can see this, but these are all. Oh, wow. Yeah. Know, it's like a video journal. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And I have this, you know, I do this every day and I end up with about 10, 15 different ideas um, and short clips every day and it is a substantial amount of work to keep it you know organized mm. and revisit but you know that is part of the creative process you have to be organized right okay so this is kind of a same question but from two different perspectives if you were to go back and start over again is there anything that you would have done differently that would have gotten you to where you are now quicker or what would you tell someone young or inexperienced that they should focus on the most in their practicing? Hmm. Well, uh, good question. 
of course, you know, looking back, it's it's easy to say, oh, you know, with my knowledge now, I would have done that differently and that differently, and mm. I would have focused on that more. And but obviously, that is just a hypothetical scenario. We can't go back, so I have no complaints about my path and how I got to the point where I am. Mm. I think it's a very sort of personal thing, and uh, and it's a very intuitive thing. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm happy that I ended up here and I know that I have a long way to go to be where I want to be in my playing and, and career in general. Um, so I, I can't really say I would have done much differently because I know today that things take a huge amount of time. Mm. If you really want to develop something seriously and in detail and, and try to create something that is meaningful to you or different and creative it takes a massive amount of time and focus determination discipline and organization um so i i I couldn't say to myself oh you know you should have worked on those doubles sooner you know (laughs) you know that no i can't i couldn't say that and to recommend to younger drummers, you know, something specific to focus on. Um, I would, I would focus on those, you know, two things: uh, technique, of course, and and trying to sound different, being creative, and and trying to focus on personality uh, in your playing. Yeah. Try to not sound like everybody else, you know, and try to look at everything that already exists that you see online or get out of a book. Don't just take everything as uh, the uh, established final version of everything. Have the courage and the ambition to to turn everything upside down and mm. to look at it, you know, from a different perspective. Turn patterns around, mix things up, put your own personal kind of stamp on it and and your own personal flavor and spice, not just in regards to you know, sound choices or something. Also conceptually, how to apply in what musical context to apply certain things. Don't be afraid to, to, um, to you know, cross styles of music and apply things that are commonly heard in jazz, also in metal and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ignore all, look at the rules and standards and rudiments and all those kind of things. Take them and then just collapse it all and destroy it all and learn everything so you have the technique and the facility and then completely ignore everything and try to create your own kind of personal world of stickings, patterns, sounds, ideas, applications, Mm. so forth. So when you practice, I recommend focusing on technique so you have the freedom to express what you think and in regards to the mental and intellectual aspect be smart about who you copy what you copy and, and don't try to copy uh when it's time to to present your own ideas don't just be a um sort of uh a, a, a reproducer be a producer mm-hmm. that's great so i wanted to go through your because you have a, a nice sidebar in your story Thomas's practice tips. I don't know if you wrote this or if this was edited out of your interview, but it's a really, really jam-packed sidebar. 
-hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about some of these bullet points. Um, so you've, so you've got, you say, learn and remember the rules of efficient practice. First bullet point, um, never play when you practice, never practice when you play. Yeah. I think I know what that means, but then there's a follow-up uh, follow bullet point, practice like you play. Right. Are they not contradicting them to each other? No, they're two different things. So never play when you practice, never practice when you play means when, you, when you're practicing, you know, playing and practicing require two completely different mindsets. Mm -hmm. Playing is emotional. It's interactive. You're focusing more on what's happening around you, the rest of the band, the audience. Playing um, is a conversation with other people. And playing means usually to play something or, or express something that you have already practiced. Mm -hmm. You, you want to be in a, in a place of comfort uh, and, and confidence when you're playing to support a band, to, to help other musicians with cues, to lead uh, and exert uh, competence and, and confidence. So playing is something quite, you know, emotional and, and, and should be comfortable. And practicing is the opposite. Practicing is, is methodical. It's boring. It's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, it's repetitive. Uh, there is, it's not interactive. There is no other people around. The focus is all on yourself. Mm -hmm. It's the exact opposite of, of playing. So when you're in that mindset of practicing, being repetitive, methodical, uh, organized, uncomfortable, challenging yourselves all the time, you shouldn't interrupt that state of mind by then snapping out of it and playing something you've already practiced. Mm -hmm. You know, this is usually sort of the, the emotional or, or mental sort of lotion you put on yourself, you know, <laughs> right. you're practicing. you know, you're so frustrated. Practicing is a, is a disturbingly frustrating <laughs> endeavor you know right. and it takes a lot of grit to practice correctly yeah and a lot of drummers need to ease themselves comfort themselves during a practice session making themselves feel good um, by playing something they've already practiced simply to to get into the headspace of oh i'm not really that terrible i'm actually quite good look this right. is what i can play and uh and i hate doing that and we're all guilty of that because we all need that mental balm every once yep. in a while and go, oh, we're, I'm not really that terrible. But if you are a decent practicer, um, then about 30% of the time, if you're a good practicer or a decent practicer, about 30% of the time, you kind of get into that mind space of, of playing while you should be practicing. So you're playing something repetitively, you're focusing on whatever that exercise is that you're doing, and then and you fail, you fail, you fail, you fail all the time. So after 20 minutes, you're like, ah, oh, dang, I gotta, mm. you know, play this shuffle now, because I can really play this. That feels good. Ah, oh, you know, <laughs> you give yourself a break. And uh, and then you kind of elaborate on that and you play that thing for five minutes, ten minutes until you realize, oh, okay, I should get back to practicing. Right. So if you're a good, disciplined practicer, that happens about 30% of the time. 
mm-hmm. which is already a lot if you look at your dedicated practice time. If you're not such a great practice, so it happens 50% or more at the time. Right. Most people spend half their practice time playing something they've already practiced and not practicing. So if you put that into perspective, you know, over, over a period of five years, that's two and a half years of practice, dedicated practice time wasted on playing and mm-hmm. not practicing. And that that point, you can make the decision. Do you want to get to the goal that you set for yourself, you know, in two and a half years or in five years? Right. Or in five years or in 10 years? You're literally doubling your practice time. If you don't stay focused and fully concentrated when it's time to practice. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what that rule means. It means never play when you practice. And then the opposite is when you're playing and you're performing, uh, the other rule, you know, never practice when you play means that don't try to play anything you can't play or haven't practiced when you're performing with other people uh, because mm-hmm. you're putting everybody, including yourself, at risk. You know, when you're on a big TV show and, I don't know, there's sequences involved and what have you, don't try to pull out those super fancy licks that you have in your mind but not in your hands. Mm-hmm. So don't practice when you're, you know, performing with a band. Don't take risks that... Um, you know, you you kind of intuitively know it won't work out. Don't try to attempt practicing uh, overplaying when you're working with people and and attempting things that that have never worked in your practice room because mm. you'll probably make yourself look like a fool and the rest of the band too. So it's right. about discipline and it's about confidence and competence when you're performing. And the other rule, uh, practice like you play, Yeah, that describes the attitude and energy um it's really an expression that comes from you know athletics and sports when you're when you're practicing with your you know football team soccer team whatever it is it's important to practice with the same intensity uh, okay same uh level of energy as you would in an actual game and it's the same uh, with practicing an instrument, especially the drums. It's easy on guitar or bass or keyboards because it's not that physical. Mm-hmm. But on the drums, uh, you know, the more beef and muscle you put in your playing, uh, the more energy and aggression or whatever it is, um, the, the more sort of explosive your performance can be, the more impressive, the, you know, it's, it's louder, it's got more energy, the drums sound different and so on. And you have to practice with that same attitude. Mm-hmm. You cannot prepare yourself for a gig that is a high-energy gig if you don't practice with, with the same amount of high energy. It requires a different technique. Uh, it requires building up calluses and not ruining your hands right. on that particular show and so on. It's a completely different attitude. And I see a lot of drummers and students, you know, they'll practice a Foo Fighter song. Yeah, no, no, no. But then if you look at Taylor Hawkins or something performing the song, it's a whole different world. It's not just about the pattern. Yeah. Pattern is correct, but the attitude is completely missing and the power and the aggression and the energy. And it takes a lot of dedication and, and again, great to practice that way because you have to kind of create, artificially create that adrenaline in your rehearsal room mm-hmm. um, to get to that level of playing. And, uh, and you have to do it regularly to really prepare yourself for situations like that. Yeah, that clears it up. Good. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, that's all the questions I had. So I just want to know what's next. What's on the horizon? Uh, I know you've got nine beats USA. I assume the pandemic kind of 
put your your goals for that on a slightly different projection, but I assume yeah. it's still a major one for you. So what's what's the it, yeah? It's a major one. Uh, actually, I'm right here at the studio right now. Uh, yes, um, the core uh, of our business is you know physical group lessons. We focus on lessons for kids. Well, all ages really, but a, a big focus on kids. Uh, we have a dedicated method of teaching group lessons, the nine beats method. It's yeah. uh, could be compared to like the Suzuki method or something mm-hmm. uh, for drums. And um, of course we can teach uh, physical drum lessons right now, but we are focusing on the whole digital side. Um, we're creating a lot of content. Uh, we're developing two apps at the moment. Um, and uh, so we're very, very busy on the tech side of things, on the digital side, mm. in terms of content creation, uh, we are working a lot on play-along tracks, uh, on the video lessons, uh, live streams. We have a vast amount of students. Um, I don't know if you know anything about Nine Beats, but it's a, a drum school franchise originally from China, mm-hmm. uh, the largest one in the world with over 350,000 physical drum students. And um, and, there's a, and existing apps with millions of users and subscribers. So uh, we already have our audience. So we're catered to the existing audience and to our members um, via the app and the digital media. So we're, we're keeping busy, but uh, we're looking forward to opening doors here again for physical students, of course. You know, I'm a big fan of actual physical drum lessons. Yeah. Uh, or music lessons. I think you you can never substitute that solely with uh, online lessons. Although I'm also a big fan of online lessons. I've had online schools mm-hmm. for years and years and years. But there's something to be said for that physical interaction and literally just touching a student's hand and twisting their wrist a little bit and going, no, that's how you hold the stick. You know, you clear everything up in seconds. Yeah. And uh, And of course, it's interactive. And students can ask questions in real time uh, in, in real physical lessons. And that, you know, it, it, there's an instant exchange and instant improvement and corrections are instant, etc. That doesn't work so well online, no matter how well you're set up with your cameras and VR mixes and whatever. Right. You know, it's just never the same, you know. And um, so, yeah, we're looking forward to opening doors. Uh, and we're headquartered here in Oak Park in California, yeah. Los Angeles, basically. And uh, yeah, we're hanging in there, but we're we're keeping busy. Yeah, I've got a lot of remote sessions and online sessions to do. Yeah. So I'm here every day, you know, practicing and recording, doing sessions, and um, and taking care of the business side of things. So if anyone wanted to learn more about the Nine Beats USA, is it nine the number nine beatsusa.com? Exactly, yeah. Let's go check that out. Yeah, so if you go there now, you can access digital content? No, if you go there now, you'll see the website just uh, talking about uh, Nine Beats. All our digital content is on, a, uh, is on an existing app, uh, which uh, is not yet in the App Store here. We're, we're developing two new apps. Okay. Um, one is a student app, one is a teacher app. And, um, and that should be done in August. So in August, it'll be in the App Store. Right. Uh, at the end of August, and uh, and then people can see all the existing content and all the new content we're constantly uploading, uh, and they'll have access to everything from play-along tracks to, you know, again, video lessons, transcriptions, and so forth. 
There's a lot of new content coming up, all the playalongs for my last solo album and uh, transcriptions, you know, songs like Helmet songs. Do you know the band Helmet? Oh, yeah. I'm a huge um, yeah. fan of Helmet. <laughs> and uh, I've been working with Paige uh, Hamilton a lot, and, cool. uh, and he just created some really great play-along tracks um, and much, much more. So it's, it's a profound sort of selection of content, uh, all, a lot of original content, a lot of licensed content um, that we're getting from companies like uh, Hutz Music and Drum Guru and uh, BC, my online drum school, and, uh, and a lot of new content. Awesome. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to chat. And again, if you want to check it out, it's the number nine beatsusa.com. Go check it out. And Thomas, thank you for the chat. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. <laughs> All right. Now it is time for the Shop Talk section. This week, we are sitting down with Burke Doggerty, who is the U.S. distributor of Koide Symbols, which is high-end handcrafted symbols out of Japan. So he's going to give us a little bit of insight into the two series that we reviewed in the August issue. That is the 703 and the 10J series. After we talk with Burke, we're going to drop in some audio to check out these two symbols in action. Okay, so we've got, uh, I got to say this right, Burke Doggerty from... <laughs> do you, is the full company bronzepie.com i mean how do you how do you introduce yes, your company .com, yes. right so it is an online distributor of exclusively the simple company we're talking about today or do you offer other brands no other brands i i try to focus on independent simple smiths or right. very small companies like koei day koei day four-man outfit so the, most of the other guys are just single you know single person outfits so how did you first become aware of Koei Day? Uh, a really strong element of chance. Um, I was, my wife is Japanese. We were visiting her family on the first trip, my first trip to Japan. And um, we were visiting some friends of ours in Tokyo. And um, I stopped into a drum shop in Tokyo and uh, was looking at the other symbols, which they had, the Spitsakinos and the vintage Ks and that sort of thing. And then I noticed the uh, Koei Day symbols. And, um, little tag hanging on it. I asked my wife to translate it. And she said, Oh, they're, they're just four blocks from my house. Uh, so that's how that started. And when we got back to Osaka, um, I just got on the bike and found the location and, uh, set up a meeting with Koei Day. And that was five years ago. And, uh, from there we developed a relationship and, uh, and he was expressing some interest in trying to step into the U.S. market. A little bit hesitant. He was afraid the, uh, he wouldn't be able to meet the demand. But uh, as we've discovered, it's a very slow process of stepping into the mm-hmm. music world uh, with new instruments. So I should back up and say that because I often get asked, um, how does something end up reviewed in Modern Drummer? Various well, ways. Sometimes I get, I get pitched ideas from the manufacturers, but oftentimes I'm just – searching and we met at a percussive art society convention you were displaying there last year and that was the first time i'd ever seen these symbols um and i was just struck by how not surprising japanese craftsmanship they were just beautiful just gorgeous instruments Uh, but i'd never even heard anything about them so it was so i was very intrigued you were gracious enough to send up a couple sets for me to review um so, yeah, I wanted to make sure. So are you the exclusive U.S. distributor, North American distributor? What is the relationship at this point? 
currently, yes. Um, okay. That may change at some point. My initial uh, plan is just to sort of get a foot in the door for Koei Day. Yeah. And um, as demand, if it you know increases, then we'll take it to the next step from there. But currently, mm-hmm. I'm the distributor uh, at the moment. Okay. So, what did you find that was unique about their symbols versus the other symbols that you are selling? Um, Koide's approach to making symbols. Mm-hmm. Uh, Koide is not a drummer. Toshio Koide is his full name. Um, so uh, Mr. Koide uh, is not a drummer, even though he's an avid music fan. Um, he's had uh, he's taken over the family metalworks business in Osaka, and um, back uh, around 1989, 1990s, when he took his first real step into making symbols. Um, they had um, made symbols back during the 60s when his father was running the business. They were just okay. little glass symbol student type things. Um, they also made the, uh, the copper kettle portion of a timpani mm-hmm. drum. So they were making, fabricating metal parts for different people, different suppliers. And uh, he, I think it just followed a passion that combined his uh, skill with uh, metal working and uh, allowed him to dabble in metallurgy in terms of creating new alloys to work with. And um, he started the traditional way, which was hammering and hammering, mm-hmm. and then started to adapt uh, machinery that he had on hand into making some of his symbols, which, inform, which in, excuse me, uh, involves uh, spin forming and uh, machine hammering, as well as hand hammering, or a combination of the three. Okay. Uh, depending on which series. And then he also wanted to uh, play around with alloys uh, to bring out different sound qualities. Um, it, uh, for example, using a B23, which is a much harder alloy, um, but spin forming it and uh, then doing some overhammering that allows a very brilliant symbol without it overwork hardening throughout the process. You would not be able to machine hammer or hand hammer that alloy very easily without uh, manufacturing problems. So um, he's uh, using a combination of traditional techniques and um, also his uh, innovative um, uh, endeavors to try to bring about new sounds. Very Um, cool. So the two series that we reviewed this time are the 703 and the 10J. Yes. From my understanding, they're both traditional B20 bronze. Correct. But there's a difference in the processing, right? Yes, the the 703 series are completely hammer shaped. So you're going to have variations. They they strive for uh, a ballpark profile, weight, you know, um, uh, degree of hammering. Um, It's more geared towards the jazz market, Mm -hmm. a little thinner, a little washier, um, maybe a little drier in some regards. Um, This 10J series is basically a, the 703, but it's manufactured in a little more of a, a, a little cost-effective method um, of production. So he uses spin forming to get the general shape and then comes back and hammers over top of that to bring about complexity mm. and uh, some extra uh, familiar qualities that we're all used to with Turkish-style hammers. Cool. So, yeah, I reviewing these, if, if I didn't know they were different, I might not have known that they were a different series altogether, which is probably a good testament to he's achieving the goal, right? To mm-hmm. yes. to make something that's a little bit more um, 
predictable, but still has the old classic sound within yes. the 10Js. And that's uh, the, the big thing about the 10J is the predictability. It allows him to, you know, a 20-inch in the 10J series is going to have a very common sound from one to the other. There'll be slight variations because there is a portion of it that is, uh, is hand-fabricated. Mm-hmm. But uh, it eliminates some of the uh, the, the, what, the variables mm-hmm. uh, in production, so it's a little more uniform in sound. Whereas the seven or three can be all over the map. Uh, you want to purchase the exact symbol that you're listening to. Uh, Every one is completely different. That said, within the seven or three sample that you sent up, there was, I believe, there was a nineteen, two twenties, a twenty-one a 22, and then a flat in the two sets of hi-hats. Yes. The two 20s, so everything, like the 19, the 20, the 21, the 22, they all seemed consistent of the same sort of profile or, or, mm-hmm. or general um, characteristics. That other 20 was like extra thin or extra hammered or something. Is that a subset yeah. of that series? That actually is probably uh, more... Uh, the series that you received were, are what we call the 703S, which is a sort of a subset of the 703s. And that's okay. just uh, the, the difference there is the hammering is not as aggressive. Um, they're not as light. And uh, they're a little um, a little washier and uh, not as aggressive. Mm-hmm. Now, the 20 that you were mentioning is almost uh, a normal 703 with extra hammering and even lighter. It has a much more aggressive uh, attack, uh, crash, a little trashier. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the only 703 that I had on hand to send. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's a fairly close representation of the, the 703 series in and of itself. The 703S, that's uh, S denotes softer. Um, that was all of the other symbols fall under that, that category. Um, and and Koide is trying to gear some of his symbol lines uh, a little bit more towards the American market. So we're experimenting right now with weights and sizes and, and trying to dial it in a little bit with current trends here, which are a little different than they are in Japan. Yeah, for sure. So we're gonna I'm gonna go to you know walk everyone through the the demos that I did of these series in a bit. So would it be safe to say that what the listeners here that represents the 10J series would be probably pretty consistent with what they would get if they were to order one versus the 703 that I'm demoing one of a kind. They've got to go to your site to check out what's available. So do you offer like purchase this symbol option? Is that, is that how it's set up? The 703s, if you purchase the symbol you're listening to, that's the one you're going to get. Got it. Once that symbol is sold, it's taken off of the site. Awesome. Well, I don't have any other questions. I just wanted to get a little bit of background on, you know, the 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 brand because they're so fresh and new to the, especially to the to this market. I don't know how they're doing in other markets, but um, I was very impressed, and I was I'm very thankful that you were able to send them up. We've got some other ones to check out that are more of the, you know, the proprietary alloys. I guess is how you would describe right. those. So the Brilliant series is is B twenty three, correct. And then you also sent Absolute Series. What is that alloy? Uh, the Absolutes are a B21 with um, a fair amount of iron added. Okay. Uh, it um, uh, makes it have a little uh, faster decay and just a different tone all around. It's a very 
um, I find to be a very uh, unique sounding symbol, um, different from, uh, actually it's a symbol that I normally would not gravitate towards, but when I put a set of them up on my kit and play around with them, I get stuck on them and they stay up for hours mm. uh, just because they're so different from what I look for out of a symbol. Awesome. So Finding everyone the are going to be, that's going to be uh, up to the listener. <laughs> yeah, of course. So anyone listening, if you want to check out, we're going to go into the next section where I'm going to guide you through my product demos. But if you want to open up your browser now, go to bronzepie.com, correct? Correct. And then you'll see everything that's available in the United States from Kui Day. Um, and the symbols you hear there are available for purchase. And then uh, that's it. Thanks, Burke. Appreciate you uh, popping in here to give some firsthand account. So I'm verifying oh. my information that I ran in the review. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Mike. And thank you very much for uh, inviting me on and uh, reviewing our symbols and checking out our product. Let's take a listen to the 703 series by Koide. Now here's the 10J series, again, by Koide Symbols. that's all we have for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this, please like, share, and subscribe. Also go to moderndrummer.com. Check out the archive if you don't have the August issue, which is what we were referencing in this show. There's an archive button. You can purchase access to the entire Modern Drummer catalog um, as well as check out the August issue. And we'll see you next week. Have a good one. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.